It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, October 12th, 2016, and you're listening to God and Comics, the Earth 2 version of Touched by an Angel. On today's show, Luke Cage. In the first 24 hours after the show's release on Netflix, it was so popular that it literally broke the internet. We'll talk about the ins and outs of taking this hero for hire from the comics onto your television screen, including all the interesting ways in which religion lurks in the background. Plus, as always, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I am Rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm the rector at St. George's Church in Schenectady, New York. Schenectady, New York. And uh, Father Kyle is not with us yet. He was having some some technical uh, difficulties, but uh, he should be joining us uh, very soon. Uh, In the meantime, we can find out whether or not Father Matt has figured out how to spell Schenectady without looking yet. No way. No? (laughs) You, You have to look every time? That's actually a song, How Do You Spell Schenectady? Yeah. Like well, from the Big Bang era. That'll be the mark. <laughs> that That's when you know that you've become a native, is when you can just rattle it off without without having to look, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, let's go ahead and, and jump right into our recommendation. And I, I actually have our recommendation for today. And I'm going to recommend a single issue. This is going back to 2011, October of 2011, Issue 500.1 of Invincible Iron Man. Now, you can um, get this issue a couple of different ways. You can, you can download it, buy it through Marvel or Comixology. You can read it in Marvel Unlimited, which is what I did. Uh, or you can read it in Volume 7 of Matt Fraction's uh, Invincible Iron Man run, Volume 7 Trade, which is called My Monsters, and you can get that off of Amazon or, or um, wh- whatever you like. This is an, just one issue in the midst of a very long run that Fraction did, and it's a wonderful uh, run all the way through. But this particular issue I thought stood out and was worth mention because you can jump into it without, I think you can probably jump into it without having read the rest of the series or without really having to read beyond it. Um, And yet it does connect in perfectly with what's around it. As I said, it's written by Matt Fraction and it's drawn by Salvador LaRocca. And basically what happens in this story is Matt Fraction's Tony Stark is an alcoholic. He's a recovering alcoholic. I don't think I don't know if that originated with Fraction or if that's been something all the way along. Oh no, no. It's go it goes back until since the seventies or is 80s. that right? I was trying it's to think because because I I read a lot of Iron Man when I was a kid and I don't remember it coming up, but that could just be because I was a kid and I wasn't paying attention to stuff like that. Yeah, no, no, it was it, it was maybe before your Iron Man reading days, but it's a classic storyline. Yeah. Well, that 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 does makes that would make sense with this issue because what happens in this issue essentially is Tony goes to an AA meeting and he tells his story like people often do at an AA meeting, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Um, it's in the basement of a church and he 
he points out throughout the issue how, um, you know, basically all these people get together and the only time they go to church is so that they can have this like warmed over coffee that they receive uh, <laughs> by going to an AA meeting. But, you know, he tells his whole story. And so one of the neat things about it is as he's talking, you, you get the little clips of him talking, but then wonderfully rendered in the background by LaRocca is various phases in his life. And so you see old Iron Man costumes you haven't seen in a long time, uh, not, you know, characters and so forth. And he manages to weave this into the story, both the story that has just kind of arced and come to an end in what Frank Fraction had been doing with a little bit of a lead-in to the story that's about to come. And yet, as I said, it's self-contained enough that you wouldn't necessarily have to go in either direction with it to read it. And it really does show you a lot of what it's like to live inside the world of an addict. Now, bear in mind, of course, it's through his perspective, and there's a certain amount of his point of view is a little skewed, which the artwork, I think, also helps with. You know, there are times where he says something in a jolly way, and the artist renders it in a much darker way, and so you kind of get this idea like, okay, part of this is Tony compensating uh, in the way he's describing things. But it talks about his experience around booze as a child, uh, it talks about the way it, it stunted him when he did get into it, this sort of idea that, you you know, whatever age you become a heavy drinker at, that's the age that you, you basically stop maturing. And anytime you turn back to alcohol, you kind of turn back to that age. Um, and so he was about 15, so he keeps basically becoming 15 again. Uh, it talks about how it, it uh, also helped him to deal with social situations and helped him to kind of sort out his own thoughts, um, which, you know, was a difficult thing with a, with a kid that smart. It interweaves very well with what is never directly named, but what is clearly also a sex addiction for Tony. You know, he talks about the experience of girls in relation to this, and, you know, you can you can tell that these things are are starting to go together. Uh, it has his self-destructive behavior is laid out, the rock bottom moment and all that stuff, and then kind of the turnaround. What's really uh, interesting is that, you know, so he's been sober for a very long time when he goes to this meeting, but you can tell the ways in which addictive behavior are still a reality for him and something he's he's contending with. This is especially made clear towards the end of the issue when he gets out of the meeting and he gives Pepper Potts a phone call and he's talking to her and he says, oh, you know, this has dragged up some feelings um, and I'm just, you know, I'd love to get together or something. And you don't get her end of the phone call, but it's clear that she's basically shutting him down. And after he gets off the phone, he looks back into where the meeting is and there's a girl and they they lock eyes. And then there's this panel that just shows him locking in on her and then the next several panels wordlessly show that he connects with her, leaves with her, presumably sleeps with her. Um, and so, you know, it's like, here's here, that because that's what I do, right? The feelings have come up. I try to address them. I can't deal with them because now I've been rejected. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to turn to my other addictive behavior and I'm going to pour everything into that uh, experience because I don't know what to do with these emotions. So it's a, a really brilliant 
kind of inside look at addiction in just that short period of time. And it, you know, it makes sense. I mean, Matt Fraction himself is, is a recovering addict who struggled at times with that. And later in this same run, Tony actually does fall off the wagon briefly. And so he deals with that later. But I think a lot of people would find that issue to be very interesting to read. If you are a recovering addict, if you have a friend or a family member who is a recovering addict, or you've ever sort of interacted with um, with the recovery movement or anything like that, um, I think you will find this particularly interesting. And it's Matt Fraction, so it's funny and quippy and everything else as well. So that's my recommendation. Invincible Iron Man number 500.1 from 2011, which can also be found in Invincible Iron Man Volume 7, My Monsters. The, the original story of, uh, of Tony Stark's alcoholism was, was dealt with, in, and I think you could get the graphic novel, and, and uh, um, it's called Demon in a Bottle. Uh-huh. It, it was David Michelinie, M- 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 yeah, Michelinie, I think is how you pronounce his name. I mean, back in those days, it was like, you can't show Iron Man as a drunk. He's a hero. Right. He's supposed to right. be a role model. But he heroically confronts his his weakness and his addiction right. in a way that I, I think is 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 uh, pretty powerful. And and in that way, he serves as a great role model. See, it's like heroes are able to acknowledge their weakness and when they need help. <laughs> and, yeah. and Tony Stark is able to do that. Well, uh, welcome now to the program, uh, Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle. Where are you? I'm at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Oh, great! Great to have you. We we tried not to talk too much about you in your absence. Um, Thank you. So I appreciate we're that. glad you're with you. And and that allows us now to go ahead and jump into our main conversation today, which is about Luke Cage. Um, so Luke Cage uh, first appears in the 1970s in a comic called Hero for Hire, and uh, has been a uh, around ever since in one form or another, sometimes referred to as Power Man, uh, sometimes just as Luke Cage, sometimes wearing his signature yellow shirt, and uh, sometimes not. So the Netflix series, 13 episodes, just dropped uh, two weeks or so ago. Father Matt and I have both seen through to the end. Father Kyle has only seen about three episodes, so we're about to spoil a whole lot of stuff for him. Um, what we've decided is, uh, uh, friends, if you're listening and you haven't seen the series yet, we're going to try not to spoil any of the really major stuff, but it's impossible to talk about the show without mentioning some of the things that happen along the way. So if you really want to be pristine and not know anything, uh, you might want to pause the, pause the show now and come back to it once you're done. Um, with that caveat in mind... I'd love to know what you guys think of the show, and maybe Father Kyle, if you want to start, since you've only seen a couple of episodes, what's your early going impression of the show? My early going impression of the show is that it's a good show. Um, I, I've enjoyed the three episodes that I've watched so far. I think that the style that the show is done in, which is sort of this mix of black exploitation with hip hop culture, is a very good feel for the character. I think it's well acted, the story, as I've seen it thus far, which is 
admittedly only a small percentage of the story is um is pretty strongly written i felt like overall it's been a good show my one qualm with it is the one qualm that i have with every netflix marvel show and that's just the level of graphic scenes and violence in it Mm. does that seem any more or less than you know daredevil or jessica jones for you what i've seen thus far in luke cage it's probably been a little less than jessica jones daredevil i have yet to get through truthfully i've tried to watch daredevil a couple of times and i i can only watch so much before i need a break and uh, (laughs) so i'm still in the first season of daredevil oh really oh yeah they had it like jessica jones it was pretty kind of explicit right up front they like to sort of like introduce in the first episode or so like this is an adult superhero show, right. you know, and it's going to be violent and sexy. And then it, it, it doesn't continue with quite the graphic sexuality, at least all the way through. Right. I mean, there, there, there's some violence. There's definitely some, some intense violence, um, maybe less so than, than the first season of Daredevil. I would think um, so. Yeah. It's definitely so. violent, but it's not as violent as, as, you know, kingpin crushing a guy's head with the door of a car. Yeah. It, you know? yeah, no, no, no. There's, there's, right. it, it, it doesn't quite get that that uh, intense. I was really pleased with the show. I thought it was, uh, I, I enjoyed it immensely. I wasn't quite expecting it to be as like as smart as it was and socially relevant. I think they really made the the show relevant to our current moment. With Black Lives Matter, I mean, he—he's a bulletproof black guy, and he wears a hoodie. They really sort of went right at that, in, in, in a way that wasn't like heavy-handed or, or or preachy. Harlem is like a, a, a character in, in this show, and I, I think the, the the brilliant thing that these Marvel Netflix shows have done is is yeah, it's about the heroes. It's also about New York. Um, in, in a way that Daredevil, like, really kind of, you know, uh, makes Hell's Kitchen vivid. Luke Cage does wonderful things with Harlem and all of its its history and, and the kind of the, the fiction and the characters, the, the uh, African-American heroes that have, have been set in Harlem and fiction in the past. It, it, it's very smart and... and, and uh, uh, a, a great series with very vivid characters as well. I definitely think that it's a very smart show. And one of the things that I found really attractive about the show is the music, the use of the music, the style of the music just absolutely fits fits what they're trying to do. Um, it's one of the high points of the show for me. Yeah, they use Cottonmouth's Club as a way of featuring some just stellar like R&B soul artists uh, today. I mean, the first episode kicks off with uh, Raphael Sadiq. His album, Stone Rolling, I, I, I think it's f- fantastic. And it's sort of, it, it's modern while being the throwback to the 70s as well. And, and, and it, it kind of has that, it sets the, the just the right note for who Luke Cage is, too. I mean, he's, he's a character that's clearly rooted in, like, the um, black exploitation kind of 70s era, but 
but he's also very contemporary. It's just like uh, Sadiq's music, you know, and, and a lot of these R&B singers that are featured throughout the, the series. Well, a lot of uh, incredible hip-hop stuff in this series, too. I mean, some of which just spoke to me. So so it was almost like, this. Uh, here's a show that's made for you, uh, Father Jonathan. Uh, I mean, you guys know how much, um, how, how important hip-hop is to me. I grew up on hip-hop. I, I rapped for a long time, actually, um, before I was uh, ordained. One One thing that you guys may not have noticed um but that that i definitely picked up on is there was a a a rap group that i loved in the 90s called gang star two words gang star s-t-a-r-r every single episode of this series is named after a gang star song right i noticed that (laughs) yeah i mean that's just like you know the the just the detail of that and then just a, I guess this is a mini spoiler, but uh, there is a a uh, point late in the series where Method Man comes on to the show, not playing a character, but playing himself, playing Method Man, and he's just you know there. Um, there's also like a great um, Jadena, the the uh, who's a, a current rapper, comes on at one point. The club becomes a really useful device, as as you were saying, for uh, introducing music. Um, but I think adds that you know hip hop element as well as the soul kind yeah, of element that's the there. Marriage of like classic kind of uh, African American music from the last century with like current stuff, and and mm-hmm. and you know as Father Kyle and you have been talking about bringing you know sort of um, the character up to date and, and embedding him definitely very deeply in a hip hop culture as well. I like the one scene in uh, episode three where um, before Luke Cage goes into the Crispus Atticus Center, he puts on the headphones and starts listening to, um, help me out here. Wu-Tang Clan. It was the Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang Clan, Clan. Yeah. thank you. Yeah, he started listening Although, to them while he busted the place up. You know, it's funny because we were talking about, <laughs> we're talking about the way in which uh, it tries to show how adult the show is. But they do it in the way that, like, FX shows often do. So it's, you know, we can show a bunch of violence. Um, You know, we can show nudity and all sorts of heavy sexuality as long as we don't actually show a nipple. We we can show (laughs) violence as long as we don't show XYZ. And they can curse as long as they don't say the F word. You know, they can say anything else, anything else, as long as it's not the F word. And so they edit that. Wu-Tang Clan song so that he's listening to it and it keeps saying bring the mother mother ruckus yeah I noticed that now that you say that yeah and I'm always just like you know man I don't know who you think you're fooling with with that Uh, that's the Walmart version yeah right well it would almost almost be better if they just like if they just blanked it out entirely than to just copy the word mother so it's you know it's like oh it's almost that but it's not quite you know Anyway. Well, you know, it seems so arbitrary. I mean, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We'll show a guy getting ripped to pieces. That's not a problem. But um, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, I would say you know I, I really enjoyed the show too. Um, it's you know it's definitely in the family of these other programs, Jessica Jones and Daredevil, but it has a different feel that's all its own. It's sort of a slow build. Um, which I thought was great. I mean, you know, there's 20 minutes in the into the first episode before you even get out of the barbershop. Um, I really like 
the approach to Luke Cage as a character, which I think he's a very different character in the show than he is in the comics. You know, in the comics, he is much more... What's the word I'm looking for, guys? He's much more... Well, at least in the 70s... Yeah, uh, that's what I'm thinking. The character... He is—he's belligerent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think I read a, a, an article in Christianity Today that 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 described the character in the seventies as belligerent. He is the angry black man. Yes, he doesn't take any mess. I mean, he's right. modeled after—he's after Shaft. But even 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 more recently than that, <laughs> right, right. Even more recently than that, you know, a couple of years ago, Brian Azzarello did uh, a short version of of um, of Luke Cage for when Max Comics was a thing. You remember this? Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, so well, Jessica Jones. Right, so. right, right. That's right. Jessica Jones was was Max Comics too. So it's like you know Marvel, the Marvel universe, but with swearing, basically. And his version of Luke Cage is like. He's kind of a punk, whereas I feel like the Luke Cage that we see on the screen, um, even though he's got a past and he's got, you know, some dark things that he's done at times, he's he's got the soul of a poet, you know, like they they, they talk about literature and, you know, he's um, he's and they even remark a lot about how corny he is. Right. Like um, uh, the night nurse character, uh, Claire, played by Rosario Dawson, who gets a lot more screen time in this than I think she's gotten in the previous two series. She keeps telling him how corny he is, you know? And so it's a very, very different portrayal, but I think it works really well. I like it. I think the breakout character, though, is Misty Knight. Um, oh, yeah. Mm. Police detective Misty Knight, who is just brilliantly, brilliantly portrayed by Simone Missick. You know, I, I, I every scene she's in, she steals the scene, including when she's there with him, I think. Just very compelling, uh, the way they show how her mind works, how she struggles with things. She has this very photographic way of sort of stepping into a crime scene to investigate uh-huh. it. And it's all just very powerful and, and, and well done. So I really, I really enjoyed the series. I would say if I was going to make one sort of criticism of it and uh you guys may disagree with me if you like i kind of felt like and this is really only because i'm comparing it in some ways with daredevil and jessica jones but i kind of felt like the villains were kind of weak in this i don't think the performances were bad necessarily or anything like that i just feel like you know with with wilson fisk for instance you got this amazing like uh background that made you feel all kinds of different things about how he became who he was with the purple man in uh, Jessica Jones, even though you never really totally would empathize with him. He was a complicated, more, more complicated than you would have thought figure where, and they tried to do that some, I think with the characters here, but it, it didn't quite, I felt like it never quite got there. Like they were a little simpler and uh, a little less, up to the task of of who they were fighting against. I think Cottonmouth and and Black Mariah are are very well uh, rendered characters. I, I thought they were they were great villains. And, and later in, in the series, they introduced the the villain Diamondback. He comes across a little flatter, a little more cartoonish, um, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But um, I. I 
I, I think I will say this. They at, at some at one point they do give you a bit of a flashback into Cottonmouth and Black Mariah's history. I wish there was more of that. Yeah. Um, because because really those characters became much more three dimensional at that part at that point, and and you get to see the complicated nature of, of, of their character. I look forward to seeing that part because I. I think, based on what I've seen, in comparison with the villains that I've seen on Daredevil and on Jessica Jones, I would certainly say they were they were stronger characters in some ways. But I thought that the uh, I've only seen Cottonmouth and Black Mariah. I haven't gotten to Diamondback yet. Have you seen um, Shades yet? Has he shown up? Yeah, Shades has okay. shown up. Um, yeah, Shades well. is a little flat. You He's know, a little um, flat. Yeah. I wanted to say something more about the the way uh, Luke Cage is is uh, is depicted in in this TV show. I mean, there's been sort of an evolution in Luke Cage's character. He's just sort of like iconic character in 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 the '70s, very much kind of a little bit derivative of Shaft. But he, I mean. It, he has, as we talked about, this ridiculous outfit in the 70s with the yellow silk shirt and the, the silver tiara, which yes. they kind of, uh, Kyle, you'll look forward to seeing the, uh, they kind of wink at the audience a bit with the, with the uniform later in, in, in the show. But um, It's so but good. So, it's so fulfilling he, when he does that. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, and, but the, 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 the steel band around his head and the manacles around his wrist right. and the chains that he wears in, in, in the original series. I mean, it's kind of like how uh, Wonder Woman has these kind of bracelets, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you see the chains are a motif throughout Wonder Woman. Well, um, Luke Cage's character is to black liberation in comics what... Uh, Wonder Woman is to uh, women's liberation. I mean, he's sort of this icon for uh, black liberation. He's sort of developed throughout the years and, and become really a more sophisticated character. And and I, I want to say the person that I think is, is most responsible for that in recent times, I think is Brian Michael Bendis, who brought the character into the run on Jessica Jones. Uh, and then the Pulse and the New Avengers, and he made appearances in Daredevil, and made and made him a more kind of sensitive, thoughtful, kind of intelligent character. You know, he's still he's still a you know a in your face kind of tough guy, but he's a lot more complicated than that. And I think they definitely took a cue from uh, Jessica Jones or the Alias comic. And, and his depiction that he's much more like that than he is like the 70s Luke This is a breakthrough in terms of superhero shows and the depiction of an African-American community. Um, you know, I mean, we've had other um, black heroes. You know, we've had Falcon on the big screen and Black Panther, who's about to, to come out and so forth. But never this sort of whole community. I mean, I, I just kept thinking this is, I think, one of the most diverse casts, casts I've ever seen um, on any kind of television show, let alone a, um, let alone a superhero show. Well, it, it, it's, I, it's, it's almost entirely an African-American cast. Well, and Latino and, um, 
and uh, I, mean, I guess there are a couple of white characters. Um, but they use it spare. They use them sparingly. It's yeah. like the black exploitation films in the seventies. It takes place in, in, in like kind of outside of the dominant white culture. It's sort of you know that's why I said in Harlem, you know where where it, where the African American community has always sort of been able to have like its own sort of place to flourish creatively and culturally. He, he's not just a superhero who happens to be black. Right. I mean, it, it's a major part of, of his identity and what the show is all about. Right. And they, they work a lot of, you know, references to, um, to literature, black literature. You know, they reference historical figures, the Crispus Attucks building, you know, uh, and all of these sorts of things. They're they're really trying to kind of make an undercurrent of that. Um, you know, it, it it would be so easy to take a character like this and to create a show about demons of the inner city or something. You know, like where it would be really like lots of gangsters shooting each other up, and it would look like some of the you know menace to society or uh, some of these films from the '90s that used to come out. Um, and it really doesn't feel like that. It feels like this is a real community that has problems, uh, but that is, um, you know, v- v- where there's a lot of diversity within the community itself, um, where there are different businesses, where there are different people that, you know, are trying different things to try to make the community work, some of which are good and some of which aren't so good. And so it's, you know, I guess, I guess it's, I just feel like it's a more real depiction than you sometimes get, even when you do get um, a largely African-American cast. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think that's you know. fair to say. I felt like it was, was a very real place. Um, and always, I think always good for, you know, three white guys to pontificate about something <laughs> like that too. So, um, well, it, this is God in comics, and uh, so if we're going to pontificate about anything, we probably should uh, talk about you know where religion comes into the show. In the case of Luke Cage, it's not hard to come up with examples because boy, they're they're all over the place, and I want to talk about a couple of them, uh, starting with the way that Luke identifies himself and gives his own uh, name. You know, after we see this episode that sort of shows his history and so forth, and he takes on the name for himself of Luke Cage, and uh, he's asked, well, you know, why are you taking on this name? Quotes directly from Luke chapter 4, verse 18, which he says his father used to uh, used to say, and so he quotes it, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. We talk often about the ways in which superhero characters are set up to be Christ figures. Boy, it's hard to get more direct than the guy quoting Jesus directly, talking about uh, his role. And so I'm, I'm curious what you guys think of that. I was trying to remember how Luke Cage talks about getting his name in the comic. And it, it, I, I, I should have I looked that up before we started, but I, I don't remember exactly, but I'm, I, I don't think it was 
quoting from the Bible. No, he. I just read the first issue the other night, and I forget the exact name. It's like Carl Lucas, I think, was yeah, his Carl right, name. Right. So Luke became the first name, and then Cage had to do with the fact that he was imprisoned. Right. Um, so, yeah. And yeah, actually, now that you say that, I think that's part of what it was. It was, well, Lucas was my last name, so I'm just going to move that up to my, my first name. But so the show gives it this much more biblical base. And obviously gives it this kind of Christological Messiah kind of weight to it. I read this uh, article like a, a little while ago, and I wish I could remember the the author, but it was fascinating. I mean, maybe if you typed up um, Daredevil and Luke Cage Christ figure, it, it's about um, how both of these figures in the Marvel Netflix are sort of at least playing on aspects of Christ. It was called Why Luke Cage and, and Daredevil are, are great Christ figures, but Christ is still better, obviously. They talked about how Daredevil is, you know, he, he, the sort of the theological context of Daredevil is this Irish Catholicism. The Daredevil sort of represents the, uh, I thought this was interesting, the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. I mean, Daredevil takes a beating <laughs> you know throughout the series and he's sort of he he's he represents everybody he's sort of taking the beating he's you know he's almost uh you know glories in his suffering it's sort of part of the way he's atoning for for uh you know the the crimes in the street luke cage they said his context is naturally in the black theology or the black liberation theology and he is uh, a, a christus victor uh, representative um, and i thought this was powerful because if you know about luke cage's origin from the comics and how it's depicted in in the show is that he he and he even says you know carl lucas is dead he died in jail there's this sort of scene where he, he dies, he's, he should be dead, and there's an explosion, and he gets his powers, and he comes back invincible. And he's like, the, in this, he, you know, this is almost like his resurrection persona, and he has come to liberate, to set free, and so he has this new name, you know, uh, that we've been talking about, Luke Cage. And, I, I, you know, I, and the, the author of this article compares it to... the. Um, James Cone, the the uh, with his black theology of liberation, and how the resurrection in black liberation theology is seen as sort of a vindication of the oppressed, the and, and sort of a reversal, so that um, their oppression and their defeat becomes the catalyst for 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 liberation, and, and certainly um, that's. That's very true of, of Luke Cage. He spends like a long time sort of avoiding this vocation, but you know, and Pop is sort of the one that's pushing him into it. But he's been anointed to be the indestructible representative and, and defender of, of the people. You know, I think in that way he becomes a a very powerful uh, symbol of Christ. I mean, I want to push it too far, but but I mean, they're definitely playing with ele Christological elements in that way. 
So I, I would agree with what Matt said. Um, I think that there's a scene that's in the television show that parallels what takes place in the comic books with the death and the resurrection of Luke Cage. Um, there's a pretty, pretty explicit scene early on in the show where there's um, a significant amount of death that Luke comes through. And it's through that scene of death that he rises up to take ownership of his powers and to begin his work of social liberation, if you will. So you can see that Christ motif at work there. Interesting that you say that too, because one of the other things I noticed, and I do want to get to some of the other places where scripture is quoted in, in the show. Uh, but the, uh, there is a, a funeral that follows that scene and it's a significant funeral because it's sort of a turning point for some of these characters as they come and sort of give memorials and testimonies. Uh, but what's interesting about it to me, or what was interesting about it to me, is it's this big thing that happens in a church. You know, the black church is there in the background of this show, no question about it. You know, there are pastors that show up at, you know, various points doing various things. But you have this big funeral scene happening in a church where there appears to be no church. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it's a church, and here they are in the church, and here's, you know, the body laid out, and here's a bunch of people coming up to talk, and here's the pastor who's going to say some prayers or whatever, and God, who shows up in significant ways in other places in the show, does not show up in the one scene that takes place in a church at all. Well... <laughs> yeah, I guess that is sort of interesting. I mean, I think the 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 context for that scene is, if I'm not mistaken, Luke Cage kind of comes in late, mm -hmm. and it's it's sort of the portion of the funeral service that's given for like remembrances. Sure. And, and, and so so people are kind of standing up and and and, and eulogizing. Right. I'm not trying to ding them. I mean, I you know, I don't I don't think the show was was anti-religion or anti-Christian. Yeah. I'm just saying it it is kind of funny in a way that the one place that you know, the one place they don't quote scripture is when they all show up in church together. Yeah, I I I think it, it it's sort of interesting especially in the light of that wonderful scene in Captain America Civil War at at um Agent Carter's funeral where they really you know, they they take the religious interlude, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> the very Anglican one. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, this so that you have Luke quoting scripture and kind of identifying himself in a way with uh, almost as if he's a Christ figure. And I think, I, personally, I think he doesn't really. I mean, the thing that's funny about it is he's a reluctant. Christ figure, right? He's a reluctant hero, which is actually very different, I think, in some ways from the comic. You know, in the in the comic, he's hero for hire, right? Like people people pay him to you know help help them out, and in the whereas in the show, he's happy to help anybody out for free, but he doesn't want to be a hero. Yeah. So yeah. there's a there's, there's a funny a, contrast there. Um, yeah, there is. There's also a significant difference in between the comic book origin what spurns him on to become the hero for hire versus what takes place in this show. You know, well, in the, what, what are you thinking of in, in the comic book in particular? 
in the comic book, what ignites him becoming the uh, hero for hire is the death of Riva. But we've already seen Riva die in Jessica Jones, right? And right. that's not the overriding catalyst for him to become a hero in this show. In this show, it becomes that significant scene that I referenced earlier that yeah. that moves him on. I mean, so there's right. some difference. It, it, it's, it's similar, but it's it's sort of a a slight a slight difference there. Well, and it keeps yeah. happening over and over again. I mean, the scene that you're talking about, Kyle, is is definitely one of them. I would say that there's a series of it over and over again. He sort of starts to be a hero and then it, and then something will happen that'll make him pull back and then he kind mm-hmm. of has to be pushed into it again or convinced of it again. Um, you know, Claire, the night nurse, spends a lot of time basically talking him into being a hero. But for me, I thought he's not actually... Because there's a lot about sort of sacrifice and how you make sacrifices in this show. I didn't think he was really... a able to be a Christ figure until they introduced an element where he could actually be injured by something. There is a a sort of weapon uh, that's introduced that can actually hurt him, unlike, you know, most bullets that bounce off of him. And he faces that more than once. And my thought was it's the the second time. It's not so much the first time because he doesn't know it's coming, but it's the second time when he knows he could actually be destroyed and is still willing to jump into the you know line of danger that he really kind of takes up the mantle of a Christ figure, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But he has something to lose. <laughs> right. But let's talk about one of the other villains in the show. Is uh, so we mentioned a couple of them already: Cottonmouth and and Black Mariah. One of the other villains in the show is a character named Diamondback. And Diamondback likes to quote scripture a lot. And there are some significant reasons for that that have to do with the plot. But I thought it was sort of interesting, even though I think in some ways Diamondback is a more flat character. It's interesting in contrast, where you have a character like Luke Cage, who is claiming a Christ-like mantle by quoting Luke 4.18. On the other hand, you have Diamondback, who, when he shows up at one point threatening uh, Detective Misty Knight, his first words to her are to quote 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, uh, of course, if he had continued on, the next verse would say, resist him, firm in your faith. Uh, But he doesn't say that part. He just sticks with the part about the the devil. And so he kind of makes an identification of himself at that point, I think, you know, with sort of the other side of the coin, as it were. And he quotes scripture numerous times. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, he's... it's not lining up with any great theology, right? It's it's no, it's you know, just kind of kind of a cold blooded thing to say to somebody, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson, right? And, exactly. And Pulp Fiction. Right. I yeah. wanted to quote his line, and then I I stopped myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a family program, family program. <laughs> but uh, you know what what i kept thinking of is especially as he had identified himself in that way using that scripture verse 
with the devil. You know, he's got this Bible that he pulls out at one point that's got, it's underlined all over the place with notes and so forth. Like, he's like reading the Bible all the time and everything. And I thought, well, the the devil is really good at quoting scripture, right? I mean, we know this from the scripture, um, yeah. from the temptation in the wilderness. The devil just quotes the scripture repeatedly, you know? I mean, we t- I talked a little bit about how the kind of theological context was in black uh, liberation theology. And, and Cohn talks about this, too, how scripture, is, at least in Cohn's uh, interpretation, is like, you know, it's sort of plastic and it's to be used to interpret African-American experience, you know, and it can be used as the oppressor or it can be used as a tool of liberation. Here you have Diamondback who uses scripture for his own purposes to sort of strike terror in people to sort of exalt himself or whatever. And then you have Luke Cage's appropriation of scripture, which is, which is, you know, on the side of liberation. I mean, Cottonmouth also kind of alludes to scriptures. He says, you know, um, he, in specific reference to Luke Cage's sort of, you know, Messiah complex, he says, you know, it's hard being the Messiah or something. Ask Jesus. I mean, you know, there, there's this kind of constant interpretation of what's going on in light of, of, of Scripture. It's sort of, you know, the, the, the interpretive lens through which everything's kind of looked at. Cottonmouth also has that massive painting of Biggie Smalls on the, on the wall in his office where, wearing a crown. And, you know, and that the one scene where he kind of references and, and talks about what that is, and you get that great shot where he's standing in front of it and it makes it look like he's wearing the crown. Yeah. And, yeah. and I thought, if Luke is supposed to be Jesus and Diamondback's supposed to be the devil, where does, where does Cottonmouth fall in all this? And my, my, where I landed was, I think he's King Herod. He's taking a crown that he thinks he deserves, but that isn't really his. And he and he can't really wear it. And uh, he is, in a sense, a powerful figure who's trying to pull the strings. And yet, in another sense, the strings are being pulled on him. Like I, I think, I think he fits into that Herod model. That's a yeah, I, that's that's a fascinating point. I hadn't thought about that. Well, I I, I think it's worth mentioning the the kind the what what would you call it? the slogan that repeats throughout the series. It's sort of like how Spider-Man has with great power comes great responsibility. You know, the sage advice passed on by Uncle Ben. Well, in Luke Cage, you have Pop's sage advice, which really becomes sort of like the mission, uh, Luke Cage's mission statement, where he says, always forward, never backwards, always and you have Luke Cage sort of take that on. And I think it has to do with his mission as a liberator because it's like we're not going to be held back by our past, by the things that have have haunted us, but we're going to press forward to the, the our high calling, you know, or, or we're going to press forward into the future um, and not be held back by, by our past. Luke Cage is sort of, running from his past he's always pressing forward but he he kind of 
gives a caveat later. He says, sometimes backward in order to go forward. Meaning sometimes we have to, you know, look back and understand where we came from in order to move forward. I, and I, I think that's, uh, that's sort of a, a, a message, I think, that maybe the writers of the show are, are, are talking to the African-American community in particular about, like, you know, because there's so much in this show about black history. And it's like, yeah, we got to understand where we come from in order to, to move forward and, and, you know, make a future uh, for Harlem, for the African-American community, or for America <laughs> in, in general. All right. Well, great discussion, guys. I'm sure that there is more to say. I'll tell you, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure yet what the Iron Fist show is going to look like, but the ending of this show made me real excited for the Defenders because I feel like it kind of set up for it. So um, I'm excited about that, and I'm sure we'll, we'll have a lot more to talk about as these shows continue to come out. But in the meantime, we would love to know what you all think of Luke Cage. And uh, you can hit us up on social media to talk about that. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash godandcomics. Or you can join us on Twitter. We are at godandcomics. We would love to hear some of your thoughts. But in the meantime, we're going to move on to our final segment, this and every episode. And that is this or that. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody. Let's this or that. Huh? And the very first one is in the flavor of Luke Cage. This is for Father Matt. Power Man or Iron Fist? Oh, Power Man, I think. I, I, I always thought Luke Cage was a better character. Although, I'm looking forward to delving deeper into the character of, of Iron Fist. Um, especially as the show is about to come out. I need to I need to bone up on my Iron Fist. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. I've always found the Iron Fist attractive because he's a karate guy, and, and I um, I was a karate guy. I have a third-degree black belt in Okinawa and Goju-ryu, so it's always been uh, something that's interesting to me. But I have to say, the more I look at it, I think Luke Cage is the uh, power man, is the better character. Next one goes to Father Jonathan. Candy corns or corn on the cob? Uh, candy corn. Candy corn is delicious. Good choice. All right, Father Matt, hay maze or a haunted hayride? I think the hay maze. I, 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 I have fun with that. I mean, you know, there's only so much of a guy jumping out of a closet with a chainsaw that you could... <laughs> the hay maze is more of a, of a bracing intellectual challenge. So, you know. How is there a closet along the route from the haunted hayride? <laughs> oh, whatever. <laughs> I'm thinking of haunted hills. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. I got your and point. If you got a tractor and hay. Or the, uh, the shed, you know, I don't know. The shed, okay. Edit that out. Whatever. <laughs> I got your point. Yeah, I'm definitely going to edit that out. Now that you said that. <laughs> mother, mother. Mother, mother. All right. Uh, Father Jonathan, Voltron or Transformers? That's a tough one. Um, 
Well, if if this is me as a kid, I would go with Transformers, I think, because I, I liked the Transformers cartoon a little better than the Voltron cartoon. But I liked both of them. And, uh, of course, Transformers has in many ways uh, been sullied by uh, Michael Bay at this point. So I don't know. But I, I guess I'll still go with Transformers. Father Matt, Sam Wilson's Captain America or Steve Rogers' Captain America? Well, I, I think Steve Rogers. I mean, of course, Steve Rogers is the original Captain America. And uh, there's been so many more stories. It's kind of hard for, for the um, Sam Wilson version to, to, to compete. Also, uh, um, Hail Hydra. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that Father Matt's been a Hydra agent this whole time. That's right. And if you look back through the archives, it'll make sense. It'll start That's to make right. sense. Revisionist history. <laughs> All right, Father Jonathan, uh, Blondie or No Doubt? <laughs> um, those those aren't the same band. They're not the same. Um, I, I yeah. Well, I guess I'll go with Blondie. Um. I love that comic strip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, they they do some great stuff there. Um, yeah, one way or another, I'm going to go with That's Blondie. That's the better choice. Yeah, certainly. There are a couple of no doubt songs that aren't so bad. No yeah. doubt. No doubt. No, no doubt. doubt. <laughs> Father Matt, this one is for you. Bread or communion wafers. Wait a minute. Oh, oh for, for for communion. Uh, for celebrating. Oh, oh okay. Well, uh, you know, I, I think there's a reason why we why we use the communion wafer, um, or, or or why why it's more typically used, and that's because bread gets all crumbly, and and and, and you don't want that. It's a mess. Um, and you, 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 as, as the priest, you particularly don't want it in the chalice, like, you know, a bunch of crumbly, you know, uh, I think it's just, it's, it's more respectful to have to consecrate, um, a communion wafer because it, it keeps it neater, um, and it, it makes the ablutions go smoother. So I'm going to say, uh, a communion wafer. Okay. A very practical answer there. At the church that I did my internship at, at um, in, in seminary, we used uh, uh, hollow bread, and um, you would be chewing on that thing forever. Mm -hmm. It was a huge piece he would give you, and you could never get it down. You'd walk back to your seat, and you're still chewing it. So that yeah. wasn't ideal. That would be tough, too, because the old, sort of the old school Catholic way of receiving is you're supposed to kind of let it dissolve in your mouth. Right. And not not chew on it too much. So if it's like a piece of challah bread, I don't know how you would do that. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do yeah. that. <laughs> no, you wouldn't do that. All right, Father Jonathan, this one is for you. Gregory of Nazianzus or Gregory of Nyssa? Gregory of Nazianzus. And yeah. why do you say this? Gregory of Nazianzus um, is a giant. Um, in, in early church theology. I mean, so much of our reflections on the Trinity and um, on um, 
you know, God's uh, way of, of, of revealing himself to us in the world comes from Gregory of Nazianzus. Gregory of Nyssa, of course, is also a, a giant in the early church. But I would say if you wanted to compare who gives us the more crucial piece of material, I mean, I think I think St. Gregory of Nyssa offers some reflections that are beautiful and wonderful. Um, but if Gregory of Nyssa disappeared from the landscape, I don't think, you know, we wouldn't lose any critical doctrines. Whereas if Gregory of Nazianzus did, you know, who knows when the articulation of the Holy Trinity would have come. I, I obviously believe it would have come eventually anyway, because it's the truth. Right. But uh, but who knows when or how that would have uh, taken place. So That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. All right, Father Matt, Jesus or a 57 Chevy? <laughs> Well, if I were to Careful choose seven Chevy, I think I would have to be defrocked. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, I, that's a title for a violation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Jesus on this. Good answer, solid answer. We could probably just say Jesus versus anybody. Jesus, that's right. right? Like, is there an option that where that wouldn't be? the case no absolutely i mean it would be it would be a false option to say jesus or the father ah (laughs) that's true but um that would be an impossible you could do like a talladega night scenario and you could have like adult jesus on the cross versus little baby jesus in the manger because that's 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 the one he prays to because he he likes him better dear five pounds sweet baby jesus (laughs) that's right (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's all i have for today guys well then that's going to be all that we have for today's show um we hope friends that you'll go over to godandcomics.com and you can look at the show page and we're going to have lots of links there to some of the rad stuff that we talked about today you can also listen to the show again or download it there Um, The show is subscribable through iTunes, and while you're over there on iTunes, if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating or a review, we would be so, uh, so happy about that. uh, At least one of us would bless something for you, I'm sure. Um, It's it's, it's a great thing. It helps other people to find the program. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right now, is by Father Paul Wheatley who only wears bulletproof chasubles. Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And we'll see you.